Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This time, the journalist and author Alan Pell Crawford. His latest book is titled How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain, published in 2017 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. We talked about how this book is different from his earlier ones. Well, I I think that I had written the two previous books were what I would think of as tragedies in the sense that they were... uh, while kind of beautiful ones about the final years of Thomas Jefferson, they are um, stories that have a, a tragic arc to them. And I didn't want to write another tragedy. I thought, I want to write a comedy. I'm not a tragic person. I'm a lighthearted person with a sense of humor about life's absurdities. And for some reason, I just ended up uh, picking up the 1926 edition of Mark Twain's autobiography and realized that there's a great story about his business misadventures here that has never quite been told. And it was both funny and in a peculiar, perverse way inspiring because he persisted against tremendous odds and lost everything and rebuilt his fortunes. And it was a funny book because I could make jokes, but I was I also had uh, four or five funny lines from Twain per page. You say that Twain's humor has held up, which does, most humor, much humor does not. It's, it's remarkable. There's a, there's a magic there that is transcendent in the sense that um, a lot of his very early works, I don't think it's very funny. Uh, uh, most of the humorists of his period uh, are not funny today. And, and I was reading humorists from the 1950s and 1960s that were very popular and even the 70s and 80s. And their work doesn't hold up. Twain seems always fresh, and I don't know how he does it. What's also remarkable to me is that he's funny even in a casual letter to his mother written from a mining camp in Nevada. And he will toss off a line that's obvious. You know, I think of Oscar Wilde as polishing these gems meticulously to to a fare thee well. Twain, they're off the top of his head. I don't think he, I've never seen anything like it, and, and I don't think we ever will. Now, it's so interesting. Um, we talk in the biographer's circles about zeroing in on someone like Twain, who's written, much has been written about, mm-hmm. but you found an element about him that hadn't been mined before. Well, yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that I had no interest in writing a definitive four-volume biography of, of Mark Twain. I wanted to isolate one area and zero in on that to the exclusion of a lot of other um, material that I didn't focus on, let other people tell that story. Why is that important to you, not doing that cradle-to-grave classic? Well, I think that um, I have a hard time reading doorstopper biographies because they they almost invariably become endless uh, recitations of facts. Marching along, one thing happens after the other. You get the exact date of something that happened and whether or not it's important to know that date or not. And by the end of this, it's it's almost impossible for a theme to be sustained in such a way that the reader comes away 
with anything more than a, a, a huge heap of uh, information. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the writer owes the reader more and something in terms of a plot and a theme. You have a long career as a journalist, a political writer. What parallels, if any, are there between that writing and your writing and your methodology for writing books? I don't know that there is beyond learning craft. And uh, if you've spent time in newsrooms, and I, d- I haven't been a reporter the way most people have, but you know, when you're sitting around in an open room writing under deadline, if you ever had any ideas of being being precious, uh, a flower, uh, you know, in the garret in your house writing poetry that no one will understand, if you had, I, I wasn't inclined in that direction. But if you had any such illusions, they are shattered very quickly. And when people talk about writer's block, I have no idea what they're talking about. In part because I don't think that much about myself. I I am motivated from day to day. Get up in the morning because the things that interest me. They're not me. I'm a reasonably interesting person, but I don't think I'm interesting enough to think about very much. I'd rather think about other things. And I think that maybe that's a journalistic approach to writing where I never, uh, you know, I've never, I I talked in the panel earlier today about craft and um, one of the other panelists said, well, it's also art. And I think, well, yeah, it is, but, but that's for someone else to decide. Mm-hmm. You don't think of yourself as an artist. No, no. I've, that, I would cringe at the thought. Not that I'm, I'm flattered. My wife told me once and told somebody else in my presence that she thought I was. And I was, I was touched by that and, and honored by that. But I would never be something I would think myself. Occasionally I'll write a line and I'll think that has a certain art to it. And, and, and I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm glad when I can read something that I've written and I think, oh, that's pretty good. That holds up. Beyond that, I think I do bring a kind of journalist's working writer's attitude toward the task. What about uh, balancing, especially with someone like Twain, who was so prolific, and you're mining it for particular information in the case of this latest book. What about the juxtaposition or the balance of research versus writing? I know some people research, 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 and then plow into the writing. Some people do bits. and how, how does I wrote your... that book in a year. So it was ongoing, research and writing going on simultaneously. Uh, I tend to make charts and graphs of of chapters, you know, in which there's a certain amount of stuff going on, and it and it leads to the next section. So you you had the idea, and did you you wrote a proposal, you uh-huh. sold the book, and then go. You had a year. Yeah, to in fact, I, w- I had uh, three offers right off the bat from. Two from very fine publishers, and one from uh, a publisher which which is equally good, but it, but in their business division. But he said, "I want this as half half as long as the proposal calls for. And I want it done in a year, and I want it played for laughs." So he was basically asking for half as much work, for more money, in half as much time. And and I thought he, this guy gets what I wanted to do in the first place. You know, I was never planning to write a book about how Mark Twain's business misadventures informed his writing and vice versa. I, I, you know, that's a great book, but it's for somebody else to write. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of biography or of writing anything is knowing what you're not just only capable of, but what you want to do. Yeah, to- it's a, look, writing books is a big task. People have no idea. I have a pair, about twice a year, a CEO will come to me and tell me they want to write a book and will I work with them on it and 
you know, 99% of the time, they have no idea what's involved, how much work is involved, and the thing falls apart, which is perfectly fine. I don't expect, I couldn't run a company, but uh, so why would I expect a CEO to know what's involved in writing a book or even having a ghost-written book? So uh, people don't understand what an ordeal it is. It happens to be joyful and pleasurable for me, but it's work. You, you talked about how you let classic literature inform how you write. Yeah, I mean, if I'm trying to tell a story, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't read nonfiction to learn that. Um, I read a lot of Twain as a boy, but uh, this one was a, a bit of a departure for me. I've, I, I think I mentioned I wrote, wrote a couple of tragedies, and this one was a comedy, so it, in which my own voice comes through f- frequently. But in the, in the more standard uh, nonfiction works I've done, I will go to Tolstoy, to Anna Karenina or War and Peace to kind of learn how to structure a chapter or how do you a historic period or something. But if in the actual choice of detail and how to conjure up a, a vanished world, I will go to Flaubert. So I'm not reading great biographies to learn how to write biography. I'm, I'm reading great fiction to learn how to take the facts that I can amass and shape that into a, a moving narrative. So reading is a big part of your writing. Tell me what you're working on now. Well, I'm uh, putting together a proposal for a history of the American Revolution in the South. The standard um, understanding of of the American Revolution is that there's Lexington and Concord and the Boston Massacre and Valley Forge and uh, and all these things that happen in the North, and then there's a a two-and-a-half-year period, and, and then everybody ends up at Yorktown and the war is over. For some reason, and I think perhaps because historians from Boston and New York were writing these histories, the two and a half years in which the real war is decided take place in the South, and there's a gap in our knowledge of both what those battles were and what happened there and who the heroes of these stories were. And I think that's a fascinating kind of revisionist look. Uh, when in fact, the war was not, had nothing to do with Bunker Hill. Bunker Hill's sort of important. Valley Forge is sort of important. But it wasn't those armies that won the war. It was militiamen in the Carolinas and Virginia, where I'm from. Why hasn't that story been written? Well, the best I can guess is that historians tend to be from Boston, from Massachusetts. And, you know, that's one thing I want to find out. It it may well be that after the Civil War, when uh, Southern stories were not being told, except in fiction— I don't know, but also because George Washington had a very limited role in the war in the South. He ends up at Yorktown, but it's because things have already happened and the British are, are, are surrounded there, and he comes down and finishes the war. But I think that, they, that we have such adoration, and understandably so, for Washington that we're interested in what happened with George Washington in the North. But again, for two and a half years, all he's doing is dealing with Congress and diplomatic matters, those are huge, but he's not on the battlefield for two and a half years, essential. So where do you have to go to research this particular book? Um, there's a been, you know, there's a lot of rather specialized material on this, but I also live in Richmond, Virginia, where we have the Virginia Historical Society. I'm in with, I'm in, within uh, an hour to the west of Charlottesville, I'm where the uh, University of Virginia Library is in those archives, and I'm within an hour going east in Williamsburg. 
And now, here's Alan Pell Crawford reading from How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain, in front of an audience of bioconference attendees. In 1856, when he was not yet 20, Mark Twain happened on to William Herndon's Exploration of the Valley of the Amazon, 1851 to 1852. Herndon had led an expedition over mountains and through jungles, unknown except to the tribes that lived there, a magnificent adventure, Twain recalled, through the heart of an enchanted land where the alligator and the crocodile and the monkey seemed as much at home as if they were in the zoo. But what caught Twain's fancy was the flora, one particular specimen, and its effect on the Inca Indians. These Indians worked ceaselessly because they enjoyed a ready supply of the coca plant, known as the source of cocaine. They labored tirelessly without complaint, precisely as would be wished by the industrialists who soon made their appearance. It bothered Herndon to watch these men work as they did, but it didn't seem to bother them. Morale might not have been high, but corporate culture wasn't an issue. Twain was even more impressed than Herndon with the plant's miraculous powers, which revealed the secret of maintaining a dependable workforce. Of course, Twain did not understand coca's harmful properties. Not even American drug companies recognized its danger when they began to market it decades later. Coca was used to flavor Coca-Cola, hence the name. The blame can be cast widely, but no one so far has accused young Mark Twain of anything untoward. So Twain said, I was fired with a longing to ascend the Amazon and to open up a trade in coca with all the world. For months I dreamed that dream, conjured ways to get to Brazil, and spring that splendid enterprise upon an unsuspecting planet. On April 15, 1857, Twain set out for New Orleans, arriving April 26, by which time he was so low on funds as to be suspected of vagrancy. In New Orleans, Twain inquired about ships leaving for Brazil and discovered that there weren't any, and that there wouldn't be any during that century. Twain needed to think about what this bad news meant. I reflected, he said. A policeman came by and asked me what I was doing. And I told him, he, said, he made me move on and said if he caught me reflecting in public again, he would run me in. <laughs> Albert Bigelow Payne says it never occurred to Twain that it would be difficult to get to the Amazon and still more difficult to ascend the river. It was his nature to see results with a dazzling largeness that sometimes blinded him to unpleasant realities. Twain himself admitted as much later in life, saying that beyond getting to New Orleans and from there to Brazil and making his fortune, this was all the thought that I had given to the subject. I never was great in matters of detail. That was an excerpt from How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain, read by author Alan Pell Crawford on May 18, 2018, during BIO's annual conference. Earlier, you heard my conversation with Crawford, recorded on May 19, 2018, at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day. Bye.